0: Good morning. Um, You're probably not used to seeing I'm Bill Bider, one of your elders, if you don't know who I am. Um, Probably the last time I came to uh, give a message, I said something about being the C team, not even the B team. You're maybe more used to seeing me uh, as part of Sunday school, and less as part of providing the message during the worship service. Um, With Larry's enhanced uh, responsibility here at Lion and Lamb. I'm definitely the remaining C-team guy of the elders and I'll try to do my best to uh, meet the standard that our other teachers provide. Well I am, as Kent said, kicking off a series today on the Reformation and um, probably about half of you or maybe a little more have participated in uh, Sunday School and Steve did an excellent job of presenting the background history and a little bit of doctrine related to uh, how the Reformation got started and I will be doing a little bit of review at the beginning and I'll probably even mention some of the same things that Steve did just to provide background for those who were not in Steve's class to ensure that everybody is at least having some of that background that's necessary to understand and you probably will hear some of the same background emphasized as the other elders teach through this series and the way that's going to work is the first the message on the five solas which we'll be talking about in just a minute uh, will be provided like say me today on one and then next Sunday there will be a Sunday school class to go deeper into that topic and uh, one of the things that I'm going to be emphasizing is the defense of the Sola that will be talked about. Before I begin with my uh, my point of emphasis today, I want to ask a couple questions and then keep those in mind as we go forward. For those who miss Steve Sunday School, or for those who it is new information, this idea of the Reformation, are you really familiar with what the historical period of Reformation was. Do you consider yourself to be a Protestant? I don't know that I heard that this morning in your messages, Steve, in your teaching, but do you consider yourself a Protestant? Do you even really know what it means to be a Protestant? And do you consider Lion and Lamb to be a Protestant church? So keep those things in mind as we uh, go forward here this morning. Well, as uh, As you probably know, most of of you, that October 31st is the day that we really celebrate the 500th anniversary, and the world will be celebrating this, of what is commonly believed to be the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. And uh, As Steve said, that was the estimated date, although there is some uncertainty of whether it was really October 31st when Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis to the door of the Wittenberg Castle Church. And uh, again, Luther was a professor of theology. He was a composer of hymns, some of which we still sing today, a priest in the Roman Catholic Church, and an Augustinian monk. Now his thesis, his 95 Thesis, even though he had all kinds of concerns with what was being taught in the Roman Catholic Church, emphasized this concept of indulgences. Which was where ordinary people were paying money to the church for the forgiveness of sins. And I'm going to come back to that a little bit later and talk more about it. And uh, Martin Luther, um, well, let's see. Am I not on? I'm sorry told me this was working. Huh. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. These are the five solas that will be taught on by the elders over um, this period of seven weeks. And what we're really going to emphasize, just trying to summarize these all at once, is that scripture alone teaches that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ alone, and to the glory of God alone. So each of those concepts will be a message taught by, by our elders. Um, but before I sh- shift to what my first message is on Sola Scriptura, I want to provide some answers to those questions that I asked at the very beginning, and uh, just delve a little bit more into some background to, again, get us on the same starting point before we get into the details about Sola Sola Scriptura. And these concepts that you see here, these solas, were what the fathers of the Reformation, they took their stand that led to, in some cases, excommunication, martyrdom, other kind of abuse by the church. And so um, we're going to talk about that. But let's start by answering some of those questions that I had at the beginning. What is the Protestant Reformation? The widespread theological revolt in Europe against the harmful abuses false teaching and control of the masses by the Roman Catholic Church let me read that again because this is what we're really emphasizing here the Protestant Reformation was the widespread theological revolt in Europe against the harmful abuses false teaching and control of the masses by the Roman Catholic Church as Steve taught and uh, the Reformation The revolt that we're talking about here actually began way before Luther. Even though we celebrate this as the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, more than 100 years earlier, before the time that Luther nailed his thesis to the church door, men were being prompted by the Holy Spirit to point out these abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. And most of those who pointed out those abuses were from within the church. They're the ones who actually knew what the Bible taught. At least some of them who who came forward. So by the time Luther came along and posted his thesis in the early 1500s, the Bible had become a closed book for the most part to ordinary people. And consequently, spiritual ignorance was really prevalent. People were easily deceived. Because they did not know the Bible, the church could easily deceive them into whatever motives they may have had. The true gospel was twisted. Church tradition and oral teaching had become superior to divine truth, as revealed in the word of God. And as the tradition and oral teaching became more important, corruption and ungodliness contaminated church teaching. Now, this slide here that shows a map of Europe at the time of Martin Luther, you will see stars showing where a lot of the reformers came from. The blue stars indicate people who were pre-Luther. And as you can see, there are quite a few of them on there. And then we have those a few contemporaries of Luther with the red stars and post-Luther with the green stars. There are many more than that, but these were some notable ones that I just wanted to point out that it was not all Martin Luther. There were a lot of other men that came forward to point out these abuses, and I'll just mention a couple. There was a Bible translator, John Wycliffe, you probably have heard of him from England, and he actually did his work 100 years before Luther. But 44 years after his death, and it was still only 1428, the Pope declared him a heretic They had his corpse removed, burned him, and threw the ashes into the sea. Jan Hus, a Czech priest, was burned at the stake in the early 1400s. John Calvin was a contemporary, or maybe a couple decades after Luther, uh, who ended up becoming very influential in the Protestant church. William Tyndall, another Bible translator, was a contemporary of Luther. And unlike Luther, who uh, was not martyred, He was strangled and burned at the stake because he spoke against the church. And I could mention many more people who were very involved in the Reformation. And when these men uh, stated their objections to the abuses, they developed followers. And those followers, in combination, some point later took on the name Protestants. Simply stated, a Protestant were the people who disagreed, or opposed or preferred the teachings of of the Roman Catholic Church. And all who are in the Protestant Church today, and that includes us in Lion and Lamb, continue to be part of that protest movement. We are Protestants. We are part of that uh, Protestant revolt. We are those who descended from that revolt. So uh, let's review some of the specific concerns that gave birth to the Reformation movement as well. Uh, and before, I'm going to go back to the concept of indulgences because I think that is an important beginning to this. And you, if you were here for Steve's teaching, uh, and I'm not sure if this is John or Johann Tetzel, uh, his sermon, and they had this in a paraphrased way in the video that Steve showed this morning but this excerpt from a sermon helps us understand the corruption in the Roman Catholic Church so let's go through this wording because it is so clear that Tetzel's efforts to get money to help the he was at the request of the Pope he was traveling around trying to get money to build St. Peter's Basilica which was at the Vatican But what did uh, Tetzel say in this sermon? Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents and others who say, have mercy upon me, have mercy upon me, because we are in severe punishment and pain. From this you could redeem us with small alms, and yet you do not want to do so. Open your ears, as the father says to the son and the mother to the daughter, we have created you, fed you, cared for you, and left you our temporal goods, why then are you so cruel and harsh that you do not want to save us? Though it only takes a little, you let us lie in flames so that we may only slowly come to the promised glory. Imagine being one of the masses who knew very little about what the Bible really taught, hearing this horrendous description by Tetzel of the suffering of your departed loved ones in a place that is called purgatory, And you were being deceived into thinking that you could lessen that suffering by giving to the church. Well, people were very easily manipulated to give, given their lack of knowledge about what the Bible really teaches. Uh, In the movie clip you saw, and I've heard this is an unverified quote attributed to Tetzel, where he said, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Luther understood the effect of this teaching on the people, and he posted his 95 theses, which were most entirely to contest the idea of indulgences. God's word did not teach the concept of indulgences. I just have two of those 95 theses shown here, all of them addressing this in one way or another, and expanding upon these ideas. But but Luther said in number 21, those indulgence preachers are in error who say that a man is absolved from every penalty and saved by papal indulgences. And number 27 said, they preach only human doctrines who say that as soon as the money clinks into the money chest, the soul flies out of purgatory. So you can see that that quote attributed to Tetzel is pretty similar to the opposite of what Luther said. There's many other unbiblical beliefs and practices within the church that led the reformers to speak out and I'll just mention a couple of those before I get on to my main topic today. The tradition and oral teaching of the popes had become superior and even authoritative over scripture or God's word. Although tradition at times can be good and valuable, maintain order and worship and things like that can also be bad, and that's what had it become. Already mentioning purgatory, well, why is purgatory such a non-biblical concept? Well, because it really is teaching that Jesus' death on the cross was insufficient sacrifice for our sins. Also, the power and status and authority granted to the popes was unbiblical. The church had encouraged prayer to the dead saints instead of directly to God as the writer of Hebrews tells us we can do where we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. Mary had been elevated to co-redeemer and worthy of worship. And perhaps most important of all, there was a false gospel of works-based salvation that was being taught. Again, that would mean Jesus' sacrifice on the cross was not enough. So in response to these reformers and the movement that was taking place, the Catholic Church fought back. There was something called the Council of Trent. In 1545, it began and it reaffirmed the works that works are needed to save people. And the role of tradition was emphasized. And by tradition, we mean often the oral teaching that was taking place and the infallibility of popes and the things that they said was equivalent to or perhaps even above Scripture. And that finally really brings us to the main topic today. That's the background, and now what I'm going to talk about the rest of today is the concept of sola scriptura, which means scripture alone or only scripture. What it is, it's uh, practically speaking, this means scripture alone is authoritative and sufficient for the faith and practice of the Christian. It means where we as Christians turn to find truth. Truth that we don't have to doubt in any w- way at all. And I'm not talking about truth that relates to things that are non-spiritual matters, like mag- mathematics or how to fix a car or repair something in your, your house. I mean, where we turn for spiritual truths? Things about the nature of God, creation, good and evil, heaven and hell, salvation, judgment, and more. It's where do we turn for those kind of things? I'm not talking either about where the world turns for truth. We know that the world considers God's word to be outdated, irrelevant, foolish. We're talking about where people of faith turn, people who follow Jesus Christ turn for truth. And if you've been going to Lion and Lamb for very long, you know the right answer is to search God's word for truth. Remember the example of the Bereans. Even though we had Paul who was speaking truth from God, still, even with great eagerness, they accepted what he taught, but they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. But we have a tendency to look elsewhere for our truth. Even those of us who were in Lion and Lamb, who are told weekly, if not more often, to look to God's word and spend time in it, we have a tendency to turn to people who we trust as good teachers. They might be an author who has written some books, a preacher who you trust a lot on the radio, an evangelist that you've gone to see. Well, we can learn a lot from those people, what they have written, what you have heard them say, men like Billy Graham, One of my favorite preachers, Charles Spurgeon, reading what he has said. I like Chuck Swindoll's radio program and others. They're good teachers, but their written words or spoken words may not always be perfect. And neither are the words of the Pope, which was driving the reformers. All men are fallible, no matter how good a teacher they are, no matter how hard they try to allow the Holy Spirit to guide their writing or teaching. We aren't perfect. We might not get it exactly right. So what do we do? Let's behave like the Bereans. Go back and test what's being taught. Now to help us understand the um, I'll say the Catholic Roman Catholic opposition to the idea of sola scriptura we need to confirm how the Reformers, and now the Protestant Church, view the canon of Scripture as compared to the Catholic Churches. And this chart really will show how different the views are. If you're not familiar with the term canon, what we would say that really means, a simple definition, would be it's the books that are accepted as authoritative because they're believed to be divine in origin. Now, I saw in the movie clip that the Catholic Church even considers oral doctrine as canon of the law. I heard that quote, and I, I'm assuming that that was probably correct. So they have expanded the def- definition of canon to include maybe the oral statements or other things that come out of the church. Uh, but we would say is those books that have been divinely inspired. So before we even look at what's on this chart, we need to have an idea of how we see the Protestants see the church differently than the Catholics. We see things similar in some ways, but we see things very different in other ways. I think we could say we both believe that Jesus Christ built the church, founded and built the church, and it consists of believers in the Lord Jesus as Savior, as God's Son. That's where the similarity may end. There's major differences as it comes to headship or authority. Protestants believe Christ is the head of the church, which is called his body, and we find that in a few different places in scripture. Catholics do see Jesus as the invisible head of the church, but they see the pope, who's also called the bishop of Rome, as the visible head, that practical head, with full authority here on earth. And they base that on a concept that they call apostolic succession that began with Peter. And they they actually turn to a scripture in Matthew 16, verse 18, where they point to this. And if you've ever had a debate with Catholics about the succession of the popes, this apostolic succession, they will turn to this verse, which says, you are Peter, And on this rock, I will build my church. Well, we believe the rock actually was not Peter that is being referred to here, but it was Peter's confession of faith that just two verses earlier in that same chapter where Peter made this comment about Jesus being the Christ, the son of the living God, we believe that statement, his confession of faith, is that rock that they're referring to. And uh, Catholics also believe in another idea, which they call the magisterium, which is the Pope and other bishops or cardinals that have this headship here on Earth. So, with this re- this idea regarding authority, helps us understand their position on, s- on Scripture. The Roman Catholic view is that the ch- Church is over the canon, whereas the Protestant view is it's under canon. Roman Catholics believe the church determines canon, whereas Protestants believe the church discovers or recognizes canon. Roman Catholics believe the church does all the interpreting of canon for the masses, where the Protestants' view is that we encourage you all to search the canon, as the Bereans did. And also, Roman Catholics believe that the canon combines their, the canon with tradition, and even their oral tradition has become canon, as I mentioned, whereas the Protestants say the church judges against the canon. Now let's look at what the apostles taught and believed about scripture. There's not a lot of places to go look in the Bible to find these kinds of ideas, but these are pretty clear that all scripture from Paul is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Peter said, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets through human, though human, spoke from God as they were carried by the Holy Spirit. Let me say To Peter's passage that a prophet isn't only someone who predicts the future. A prophet is someone who speaks for God and either speaks the words or records the words. Now, I have highlighted a couple things here that emphasize some very important points regarding what Paul and Peter believed about Scripture. Paul said that Scripture is God-breathed. And what would that mean to you? Well, it means it's infallible because God is perfect. He's all-knowing. He cannot lie. Therefore, his word must also be perfect and without error. Now, we can say that, uh, can we say with any certainty that any of the other Christian teachers that you may respect very much and even read their works, listen to them routinely, can we say their words are God-breathed, spoken of the Lord, and infallible? No matter how good a teacher are, we can never be sure of that. Even the best teachers make mistakes and fall short, as I mentioned earlier. And you can probably agree with that. But some of you may have just a little bit of doubt as to whether the Bible that we have and that we're encouraging you to spend time in is equally infallible. Has it been passed down to us through the ages in its uncorrupted, infallible form. Well, we would say yes, that God has helped preserve this and that we have many good Bible translations. They're not all identical, the translations, but the meaning is the same in all the good translations. And that these translations that we have today in our hands are close to the original manuscripts, which we call autographs. And we have good reasons to believe that, and next week in Sunday School, we're going to talk some about that because that's a pretty key point. If we're going to say scripture alone, we better trust that the scripture is not corrupted in any way. So we're going to go through some of the criteria that were used as the church fathers discovered what books should have been considered divine in origin. Again, uh, Charles Spur- coming back to Spurgeon and his view of scripture, which was a very high view. He said, those who stand in pulpits must believe the Bible is not the word of men who recorded it. Rather, they must affirm that it is the written word of the living God. What do we believe here in uh, Lion and Lamb? From our statement of faith, We say that scriptures and their original autographs are the fully inspired word of God without error, absolute in their authority, and complete in the provision for godly living. We also at Lion and Lamb, if you look at our statement of faith, will see that we say that we adhere to the 1978 Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And that actually is a document that was signed by 200 notable evangelical teachers and preachers. It includes a whole lot more than what you see up there today, but I selected this one excerpt from that statement because it emphasizes some very important points about what we also believe here, the leadership of Lion and Lamb, and I would assume most all of you, that Holy Scripture being God's own word written by men prepared and superintended by his spirit is of infallible divine authority in matters upon which it touches. It is to be believed as God's instruction in all that it affirms, obeyed as God's command in all that it requires, embraced as God's pledge in all that it promises. Christians should run away from any church that doesn't believe that or teaches otherwise. If in any way you or a family member is part of a church where they are placing doubt on any part of God's word, you should run away from it. As James taught us in the first chapter of his letter to the 12 scattered Jewish tribes, He said that one who lacks faith and doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Though he was talking about faith, likewise any person who doubts the trustworthiness of Scripture will be the same. They'll be tossed to and fro, following the teachings or hollow and deceptive teachings of men because they'll be saying, well, maybe this part of the Bible shouldn't be trusted. Living in that kind of state, there's no peace, contentment, no hope for the promises. How do you know which promises to believe and which promises to not believe? When you start doubting any part of it, where does that end? Where does it stop? something else that we believe very strongly here, and going back to that same statement that I just read, I've highlighted where it says, we believe that the scriptures are complete in their provision for godly living. Another way to say that, we believe in the sufficiency of scripture to meet our needs. The, as something else I mentioned earlier was a practical idea or or phrase for describing sola scriptura is the inspired word of God is adequate for all faith and practice. Now that phrase actually is believed to have come from a sermon of a man named Samuel Kendall, an ordained minister in Massachusetts in the 1700s. And our statement of faith is pretty much saying the same thing, complete in their provision for godly living. That's very similar to what Paul said to Timothy when he said "Equipped for every good work. Again, this doesn't mean where we go to find truth about how to design a building or medicine or whatever. That's not what we're talking about. Every science question is not answered in the Bible. But those things we need for spiritual knowledge is found there. Another Bible teacher, John MacArthur, put it this way. He said, All truth necessary for our salvation and spiritual life is taught either explicitly or implicitly in Scripture. Now, the last area that I want to talk about this morning, and some of these things will be expanded on, as I said, next week in Sunday school, has to do with some of the Roman Catholic main ideas of opposition to Sola Scriptura. When I prepared for this lesson, I went looking online and I found all these debates where a Catholic would debate a Protestant about the idea of Sola Scriptura. And there's a lot of arguments made, but I'm going to mention just two here this morning, and we'll look at a few more next week in Sunday School. But the two that I want to mention are the Catholics believe oral tradition has equal authority to the written word, and they claim the Bible supports that position. They also believe the Catholic Church is the vessel God uses to reveal and explain truth. So let's briefly look at their arguments. These three verses are verses that they will quote regarding this idea of oral tradition carrying equal or greater authority than the word itself. From 2 Timothy, what you heard from me underlined, heard from me, that's the oral, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Another from Second Timothy, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. And then from Second Thessalonians, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or, or by the letter. So you see, they see all these, they pull these passages out where they are talking about what has been spoken. And again, back to this idea. The popes are apostolic succession authorities. They speak. What's the fallacy that we see here? This is Paul teaching. And the popes are claiming the same authority as what Paul had, Which, when his words were spoken, he is telling them to trust this as something from God. Well, the fallacy is apostolic succession. We don't really see that anywhere in scripture. Paul's words, Peter's words, the apostles, the people who had direct exposure and interaction with Jesus, who were directed who write those books that we now call canon are not the same as the popes who came later. So we find that there is a leap that they have taken to apply the same things that we would trust for those who not only interacted with Jesus, had direct encounters with Jesus, but who demonstrated also through signs and wonders authority. They're, they're granting that same thing to the to the pope. Um, Now, does this mean that teachers are what comes out of the mouth of a teacher or written in a book is not valuable to us? Well, absolutely not. The church and teachers are called to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim God's word, but not to make it up, not to make something that goes above and beyond, not to add to scripture, and not to subtract from scripture. Now, the other point that I want to mention from the Catholic Church has to do with, um, I guess I can jump ahead here, this idea of the church being the one through whom God speaks now. And that comes back again to the definition of the church. Who is the church? Well, we are the church. The church is not just that authority and headship that the Catholic Church established, that magisterium, those who have the authority, we are the church. So a lot of this goes back to that. But this passage that has you will find in some of these debates between Catholics and Protestants is taken totally out of context and misused to apply to the fact that they are saying that it's through the church that the wisdom of God should be made known. Well, read the whole passage and read what's all around it in scripture and find out that's not what this passage says at all. What it's really saying is something that is kind of mysterious to us. What it's saying is that the church, us, when angels, see what it says, rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms are somehow learning something by viewing the church. Through the church, they see something that God has revealed, which to us is somewhat mysterious. He indwells us. And when angelic beings view us, they marvel at his wise plan of salvation and preservation of his people. We can't fully grasp what it is they're learning from this, but that's what this passage is really saying. Now, finally, I want to end by saying this, almost everything I've said, because the Reformation dealt with the abuses of the Catholic Church related to their abuses, And the Sola Scriptura idea, though, applies to us today in the Protestant Church. It doesn't apply only to what the Reformers rebelled against and revolted against. We've got a problem in the Protestant Church with Sola Scriptura. And I mentioned just a couple of ideas here that we struggle with in our church. We have philosophical naturalism that has creeped into our midst. And what does that do? It challenges the historical part of God's word that relates to creation, heaven, hell, those kinds of things, miracles. You will find people in the Protestant church who would try to cut out the parts of this that don't fit their narrative of what philosophical naturalism teaches. If it can't be explained naturally, then it's probably corrupt in the minds of some people. They don't want to believe that God is a supernatural God who can do things like that. We have changing cultural norms. We all are familiar with that, but what has that done in the Protestant church? The parts of the Bible that deal with marriage, sexual relationships, that is being redefined in the Protestant church. It goes against the idea of sola scriptura. Hard teachings have been taken out. There are people writing books in the Protestant church, some people that uh, shocked me and some exposure I had in this last year, people that I thought were um, very sound Christian people who have chosen to believe the lie that no one goes to hell because God is a God of love and he doesn't send anybody to hell. That is part of what has creeped into the Protestant church as well and then we've got the charismatics and I don't want to come down on charismatics in ge- general they believe in that all the spiritual gifts still being practiced today but they there are a certain number of people believe that some of those spiritual gifts are adding to God's revelation that isn't a whole lot different than the Pope speaking something to believe that a word of knowledge or a prophecy And then if that's taken too much uh, as a strong thing to believe in, it may be just a small church, but who knows? It could turn into a cult because they focus so much on something that's being taught in that way. So brings us kind of to the end of this today. And what I want to just say is it is so important that we stand firm on God's word, the concept of sola scriptura, The only place we can turn, the only firm foundation to keep us from false teaching that could be fallible men, it could be confused men like these people who I believe are sincerely believing there is no eternal punishment in hell. They could be confused, they could be evil, they could be doing it for their own benefit. So if we stand firm on God's word, we are protected. We are tempted, though, to listen to some of these teachings. There's something about it. We all have itching ears. Sometimes these are attractive ideas. And we may at times think, well, that makes sense. I just encourage you all to test everything back to Scripture. It protects us from false teaching. Well, there's 1.2 billion Catholics worldwide who seem to, at least for the most part, turn to the Pope and the church first for their truth and maybe second to God's word. Now, that's not all, I'm sure, of them that do that. But my guess is there are millions of Protestants also that have somehow been misled away from God's word. So when I finish today, I'm going to pray for both those groups. But I want to end with something that uh, Steve had in his video. It was like the last thing that he showed, too, but it's pretty important because it emphasizes Luther's dependence on Scripture and not on the Word. So um, as he was under trial, he ended with this statement. Unless I am convinced by proofs from Scriptures or by plain and clear reasons and arguments, I can and will not retract for it is neither safe nor wise to do anything against conscience. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I I pray, Lord, that you would just give us all the strength we need to stand firm on your word in all circumstances. Help us, Lord, to hide your word in our hearts and minds, to recognize false teaching, I want to pray for the Catholic Church that seems to have uh, just not heard from you the way they need to. Pray for those people that they will spend more time in your word and less dependence on the words of men. I pray for the liberal Protestant Church that for one reason or another has been deceived and followed the lies of Satan. Asking questions like, has God really said? And then turning down the wrong pathway. Help us all, Lord, to repent of uh, any sin of doubt in our lives. Help us, Lord, to trust your word completely. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.